Welcome back to the Road to Wealth podcast, where I interview some of the world's biggest and brightest wealth experts, folks of all walks of life in an effort to unpack their journey, but also their successful tips and tricks and strategies and stories, things that they're willing to share with us here over the next 60 minutes. Uh, Today, I've got a unicorn of a guest in store for you. This guy is really something. This week's guest is Brian Portnoy. Why do I call Brian a unicorn? Brian has a extremely unique background that provides a unique combination of psychology and finance, much like Dr. Brad Klons did back in one of our early episodes of Roads to Wealth last year. With roughly 30 years of experience, Brian started as a teacher, turned finance guy, and turned back teacher, beginning his career as a lecturer at the University of Chicago. He then found himself in several finance riches-related roles up through 2014. This is leadership, management, founder-type positions. Around that 2014 timeframe, he pivots his career back to the education world where he has spent his time ever since. If you look at Brian today, he's the founder of a company called Shaping Wealth. These guys specialize in working with financial advisors and with other companies, helping them to better coach, better guide their clients and employees towards wealth and better decisions overall. Brian is also the author of three phenomenal books, two of which drove most of my research and most of my questions within this interview. He starts with a very tactical book, The Investor's Paradox. He then wrote The Geometry of Wealth, which I talk lots about in today's interview. And here recently, in just the last couple of months, he's released How I Invest My Money. This is a collaboration with Carl Richards, who's also been on the podcast. Today's conversation, you know, it's conversations like these where I start to realize and appreciate where this podcast has gone and and where it's taken me. I've really started to get granular and understand what I'm looking for, what I'm trying to just do here, what I'm trying to accomplish on this journey. And it's people like Brian, it's their introduction to something like funded contentment, this idea of true wealth. This is the exact reason that I've started the podcast and embarked on this journey. I will be back after the show just to put a few thoughts together around this idea of underwriting a meaningful life. But with that, I bring to you the unicorn, Brian Portnoy. Here we are. Brian, man, one of the first sentences in book number two, you call money the Lord Voldemort of topics. We are going to be speaking his name today, brother, but it's okay if I'm bringing it up in the midst or in the company of a wizard, which I I think I would call you, man. I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity. You're too kind. I don't have a lightning bolt blazoned on my forehead. Just, you know, freckly old face. Yeah, man, we don't talk about money. It is Lord Voldemort, you know, feared by everyone, mentioned by few. And I don't think I actually put much thought into that opening line. It just occurred to me, but it seems to grab people's attention. Yeah, I bet it does. I mean, I've listened to dozens of people interview you, other podcasts, and it seems to come up frequently that and Dr. Seuss seems to surface pretty often. So I'm not going to pull Dr. Seuss, but I had to plug in Harry Potter. There you go. Okay. For the folks that have not studied your work, maybe they're tuning into you for the first time. Can you kind of catch them up to speed on your journey, a teacher turned finance guy, how this happened? Yeah, in a sense, it's come full circle, sort of a teacher guy turned finance guy turned teacher guy. Yeah, my passion since you know I was a kid was just learning and, and ultimately sharing and pursued an academic career. Did a doctorate at University of Chicago in the 90s, but the academic career wasn't for me. It's a whole long, pretty boring story. And I was interested in markets. I had, you know, in grad school, written a lot about capitalism from a practical point of view, from a conceptual and philosophical point of view, and 
so like the market generally markets were of great interest to me and got my first investment research job at Morningstar, which at the time was a small Chicago-based company. It's now a multi-billion dollar global enterprise. But you know, over the last 20 years or so, in one way or another, I've been involved with investment management and wealth management firms, either making investment decisions on behalf of others, or over the last eight, nine years, really writing about how people make decisions from the viewpoint of social psychology, neuroscience, behavioral finance, all of those different disciplines dovetail into now a you know, pretty burgeoning, but still cottage industry of people who write about why making good decisions about money is so hard. And that, you know, you referenced page one, paragraph one, page one of the Geometry of Wealth, which came out in 2018, that was a chance for me to articulate a lot of stuff that had been below the surface for me for many, many years. I'm just going to jump right in, if you don't mind. I've got, yeah, lots of ground that I want to cover. And I think it's a hell of an overview. I'm going to just jump right in for you. I know in our prep call, you mentioned that you're a pretty big fan, consumer of Dr. Brad Klontz's work. I had the chance, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Klontz early in the podcast. This is like episode four or five. Most of our time, we explored this idea of money scripts. And my listeners and I, we found that we are not in control of who we are as much as we think, right? And rather, we're built out of ideas and theories that our grandparents and parents and that it has been passed down from. There are other influences out there like environment. I think the gist of this, the sum of this, where there are loads of factors that are at play more than just your efforts. And your efforts, no matter how great uh are really just a small percentage of the overall picture, right? A few chapters into your book, I found a supporting argument or a supporting theory. Uh, I think it's titled the 40% solution. Uh-huh. Can you talk a bit about that theory and maybe just the work behind it? Sure. And, you know, Brad's work is really important for all of us because it does reinforce and evidence such a super important view, Not and forget money, just you know, existence, the human condition, that we're not blank slates. We come from somewhere, there's a legacy there, we're born into different environments. The decisions we make now in 2021, very different than in 1721. What it means to be a consumer, a worker, what it means to take a vacation, what it means to retire. These are all historically specific contexts. And so, yes, we're born into a situation where we have control over some things, but we don't have control over many things. And the 40% rule, as you know, you alluded to, you know, there's been work in social psychology and neuroscience that gets into really how much control do we have over our lives, over our emotional state. And the answer is really not a ton. We have some, but it's not in- entirely. So the 50, 40, 10 breakout that I refer to in the book. And again, it's been written about pretty extensively in social psychology. 50% of sort of who we are, the way we feel about things, the way we observe the world, engage with the world, it's hardwired. You know, we sort of, some people call it a set point. You know, some people are really friendly. Some people are moody. Some people are totally chill. You are who you are. And, you know, about half of our psyche is sort of characterized like that. Then there's 10%. So we've got 50 taken care of. The next 10% is situational. You wake up, it's raining and gloomy, or it's sunny and it's a perfect day. You go to work and you get a promotion. You go to work and you find out that the company's shutting down. Your sports team loses or wins. Your child, you know, something good happens or bad happens. I mean, life happens. Those situations impact us greatly. But how we feel about life, how we feel about ourselves, those are ephemeral. They come and go. So it really only counts for 10% of our mood and our happiness. And then there's the other 40%. So we have the 50 as the set point. We have the 10 as situational. And then 40% is volition. Like you have control. Can you change? Yeah. Can you be better? Absolutely. Can you completely overcome kind of your genetic wiring? No, you can't. 
And so that 40% solution, so to speak, is the idea that you have some but not perfect control over kind of who you are and how you feel about things. And because that is what it is, you should embrace it and use what tools you have in your toolkit. And that's exactly why I brought this up first is to maybe kind of echo that point of don't be so hard on yourself. There are really powerful influences at work all across the board. I think the idea here is do the best with what you are given, make the right decisions, consume what you can, learn what you can, make the best decisions with what you have, and really you know, make the decisions to ensure that the next generation has a better script than you have, right? Like you can start to form their script. I think that another thing, and you said this there at your cap was, you do have influence, right? And that 40% means that your thoughts, your actions, your intent, those will, they can, they will have and make a difference, right? And so I think that's really important to call out as I kind of get the ball rolling. There's lots that I do want to cover today. Having the chance to read two of your three books, lots of your blog posts, listen to lots of your podcasts, lots I want to kind of shuffle through. But first, I kind of want to talk about the format of the second book. My second job away from selling cybersecurity is to learn or consume, learn from those that have built wealth, right? In doing so, I've read more finance and wealth-related books than I'm willing to admit, probably not as many as you have, but than I'm willing to admit. And typically, when you go to a book that's written by a finance guy and you open it up, you're expecting charts and graphs and numbers. You're expecting suggestions to portfolio construction or stock selection. Book two, I did not see any of that until maybe 80%, 85% way through the book. And so the question I have for you is why? Why did you decide to take this format or go that route? Because I wanted to write a book about what matters. And I wanted to write a book about living a good life and then how that intersected with money. So, you know, the geometry of wealth is built on a simple mental model that basically says that, you know, the decisions that we, the financial decisions that we make, building portfolios, saving, spending, budgeting, all that kind of stuff, that sits within a very big context And if we don't have self-awareness around that context, then we are hamstringing ourselves in terms of not only making good decisions at the moment, but having good sort of psychological and life outcomes in 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 the medium to long term. So I had written an earlier book, came out in 2014, called The Investor's Paradox, which touched on investment decision making. That was the focus. And I wrapped up that book with my own kind of musings about, you know, why does this matter? You know, at the end of the day, who the hell cares if you pick the hot fund manager or not, if you don't have your priorities and preferences in a place that you're comfortable with. So this notion of writing something that touched on bigger picture stuff was gnawing at me for a few years and then ultimately came up with the geometry of wealth. The idea behind the mental model was that we owe it to each other to simplify complex topics. And exactly to your point about spreadsheets and numbers and, hey, you know, here's a, you know, an Excel widget that we can use to do better. It's like, slow your roll. Let's step back. Humans are natural storytellers. We're not natural mathematicians. We're really good with narrative. We're not very good with numbers. And, you know, to the 40% rule and how we're wired, if, if we're wired for narrative and not for numbers, maybe we should roll with it a little bit. And so the first starting point is how do we achieve, you know, true wealth in this world of ours? Well, I think it starts with defining purpose and then it moves to setting broad priorities, both financial and non-financial, and then it gets into decision-making. And what I've observed, what I observed in my own career over the course of nearly 20 years, what still remains the case, and it's not wrong, it's just incomplete, is that we tend to go, you know, we find toeholds and grasps on very specific numerical things because it sounds like, well, there's a right answer to that. And we treat our relationship with money as engineering problem instead of a storytelling problem. And I would argue that it's a story problem before it's an engineering problem. And so simple mental model, purpose, priorities, decisions that at least open up a space to contextualize those decisions. And those decisions really matter. They have consequences. 
if you spend way more than you save, if you purchase not enough or too much or the wrong kind of insurance, if you buy the wrong types of investments or take too much risk, especially risk that you're unaware of. These are all very precise financial decisions, and we need to counsel others to make those decisions better. I'm not saying we don't. I'm also adding on top of that a really important layer of meaning and purpose and context that you know we can choose the right mutual fund. We can choose whether or not we want to chase the trend in Bitcoin, whatever the decision is. But if we don't some have some other stuff figured out prior, those micro decisions are going to get lost in the macro soup. I'm going to circle back and try to unpack a little bit of that. I'm going to try to get to this idea, the definition of funded contentment at the end of this. But the book has no math, no formulas in it. Rather, it's about this idea that there is something greater than money or investing out there, right? And that this ability to underwrite a truly meaningful life that you've coined the sort of funded contentment phrase. I do want to spend a few minutes talking about this idea, but I can't get there without getting to something that you hinted at of the illustrations, right? And this is something I saw in both two and three. It's one of my favorite things that I've pulled out of this. I've heard you talk about your fondness, your love for the simple drawings and the illustrations for the reason you just hinted at there. We're able to, as humans, able to process images and stories much better, much faster than we can numbers and words. It seemed like each picture that I looked at in both books hit me right in the chest, right? Like, oh, damn, I've got to, let me screenshot this. I know Carl Richards actually drew, we had him on the podcast. Oh, did you? Great, great. He drew some of the illustrations, all the illustrations in the third book. In the second book, you've simplified all of these complex ideas and topics and down to three shapes, which was is, is phenomenal. I want to put the ball in your court here one time, and I think you've kind of painted a broad stroke. Maybe we just add a little bit of color. Can you talk about that framework and maybe just a couple sentences on these shapes, why you decided to go that route? Right. And I'm glad you brought up Carl because he's been an inspiration to me in my career in terms of his profound ability to simplify complex concepts through the brain processes images 60,000 times faster than words. And we should respect the fact that we learn visually as well as verbally. So, you know, the idea with the basic shapes was to, you know, in this complicated quest for true wealth in life, to lead a, a wonderful life that we can afford, that we can underwrite. That's a pretty heavy topic. I mean, we're going back 2,400 plus years to Aristotle and everything in between when we begin to boil that ocean. Well, you know, I could write a thousand page philosophy book, or I can draw some basic geometric shapes that capture the main idea. So circle, triangle, square, purpose, priorities, decisions joke. Don't even spend the whatever, $12 on the book. There you go. Just look at the book jacket and you got the argument and the path through a truly meaningful life. You're welcome, right? Circle represents purpose because we're always figuring it out. All right. The guy that you are in your teens and 20s and 30s isn't going to be the guy that you are in your 40s and 50s and 60s. We all change to some extent and we're all searching to some extent in one way or another. And so, you know, it's a round world. There's no end point where we say, oh, I've figured it out. I am who I am. And there's nothing else to work on here. I think most of us, anybody who would be listening to this podcast recognizes that a meaningful life is a lifelong journey. So the circle represents that never doneness. Then we move into a little bit more granularity in terms of, okay, within that quest for meaning and purpose, how do we set priorities? I scale to a, a triangle because there's, in my view, three priorities. I call it protect, match, reach. And this sort of speaks to, I think, the way people write intelligently about risk and risk management. It also reflects, you know, just basic thinking about evolution, meaning that, you know, we have to survive before we thrive. You have to protect yourself and the ones that you love before you can go on and accomplish great things. And so the triangle, it's really sort of three stacks in the triangle. Level one is, you know, keep yourself safe, protect yourself. And we're talking financially and non-financially. And then match or balance, 
you know, find balance in your life. It could be monetarily with your balance sheet assets and liabilities, but we also have psychological assets and liabilities that we need to keep in balance. And then the third priority in the triangle, in triangle besides three priorities, is once we have, you know, kept ourselves safe and we've found balance, well, now we could reach for the stars. I mean, the old Casey Kasem line, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. I mean, it's applicable. And then the square is, you know, has four sides. And I was speaking specifically in the book about making better investment decisions. And to me, you know, to, to summarize years worth of writing, a good investment is one that meets your expectations. And so to me, there's four expectations that you set in the world of investing in, in terms of, you know, what it does and how it fits into your portfolio. And so, you know, a round circle, a three-sided triangle for three priorities, four-sided square for investment stuff, Bob's your uncle. Like you're out the door. Now you have robust mental model that you can layer in as much nuance as you want, but it's important to start with that and then make it messier. Yeah. And as easy as that was for the listeners to consume and listen and say, okay, that's pretty damn simple. It's got to be harder than that. The book is just as easy to consume. I mean, it is literally, you've done a phenomenal job. Like you said, taking years of complex topics, research, hard work, and boiling this down to a couple shapes. It's phenomenal, man. I do want to circle back. I'm going to try to double click on this idea of purpose and setting goals and things like that. But I'm 28 minutes into a podcast. Let me say something about cash or wealth or building wealth or something. For the all the years of work and research that you've seen, that you've done and been involved with, what relationship have you found between money and happiness? So the short answer is that it's messy, that money can't buy certain forms of happiness, but it can buy others. In sort of summarizing a pretty vast literature on happiness and life satisfaction, we sort of have two modes. One is sort of day-to-day, what I call experienced happiness. So you wake up, you're in a good mood, and you're in a bad mood, you stubbed your toe, you got a promotion, you, something good happened, and, and you're sort of happy in the moment, or vice versa, you're, you're sad. There is a very weak relationship between having more money and that day-to-day sense of experienced happiness. It basically levels out at a lower middle class income. So, you know, people throw around specific numbers, which make the debate, I think, more confusing. Not let's just say that if you could put food on the table, have a roof over your head, a basic sense of safety, and that, you know, things are okay. Beyond that, there are no purchases in terms of cars or homes or vacations that materially improve your day to day happiness. There's a second form of happiness that I call reflective happiness. And this is, you know, going back to 2,450 years or so to Aristotle debating the hedonists, he had this concept of eudaimonia, which is this notion of fulfillment or, you know, a more deeply engaged and fulfilling life had nothing to do with whether you're in a good mood or a bad mood on a day-to-day basis. The hedonists were talking all about maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain, not so much Aristotle. There's this reflective happiness, I call it the step back, where you say, huh, am I leading a good life? How could it be better? What have I already done or experienced that I can cherish and feel grateful for? Big picture, a very controversial finding in the social psychology literature is that there's actually a positive relationship between having more money and having that higher sense of life satisfaction. Why that is, I think, remains... um, subject to debate. But um, I think part of the answer is captured in this notion that the things that really matter to us, connection with others, a sense of control over our lives, a, a connection to something bigger than ourselves, whether it's faith or country or, or whatever, there are certain types of decisions and non-decisions that we can make at higher and higher levels of income that allow us to underwrite those things. It doesn't mean that it's not achievable at lower income levels, but money spent wisely, number one, allows you to avoid sadness and allows you to some extent to purchase reflective happiness. Does not give you much runway on purchasing experienced happiness. A quote from your book, 
It alleviates sadness, but does not buy joy. When used in areas that fulfill your needs, give you contentment, you will achieve joy. I mean, man, perfectly well. I mean, just perfectly put. Money itself, and this kind of hints back to what we were talking about earlier. Money itself is not at the root of joy or the root of happiness. Rather, there's something deeper. And again, we've called this funding contentment. And now I get to ask you about this cool phrase, this cool term. Actually, in your third book, the chapter, your chapter has funded contentment up at the top with Carl Richards drawing, right? So this is kind of your shtick. This is your thing. What is funded contentment? Yeah. So funded contentment is true wealth and make a really important distinction between being rich and being wealthy. And this is just vocabulary. It's the way that I think about it. And being rich is having more money. So, you know, you have a hundred grand and you want to 10X that to a million. Well, by definition, you are richer. You're not necessarily wealthier. So rich is the quest for more and wealthy is the quest for alignment or calibration between the meaningful parts of your life and the financial decisions that you make. So I define funded. So my shorthand for true wealth is funded contentment. What I realized is that for much of a 20-year career in finance, I was focused on the funded part, investment decisions, saving, budgeting, you know, venture capital, hedge funds, all this kind of stuff. And flipping from the investor's paradox to the geometry of wealth and then how I invest my money. And it just corresponds to me getting older, having kids that are growing older, parents that are growing older. I feel like a Stevie Nicks song. We're all getting older. It was a landslide. But funded contentment is the ability to underwrite a meaningful life. A very you know, deliberately loaded phrase because, well, what is a meaningful life? Spent a lot of time in the book walking through that. And it's important to state that it's whatever is meaningful to you. You know, back to Brad Klontz and money scripts, living somebody else's script is a miserable experience. And I think a lot of us do it to some extent every day. This is the life that we ought to be living as opposed to the authentic life that we want to be, you know, that is inside each of us. And that authenticity and that authorship, it evolves over time. It makes it even harder, but more fun in terms of, well, how do you adapt to a, you know, not hard to make an argument these days that the world is a strange place and that, you know, we need to just adapt with, you know, things that are somewhat out of our control. So you want to underwrite a meaningful life. Meaning is up to you, but there are some tried and true categories. And I built another mental model to help people think about that. And then underwrite. I mean, I chose that word very deliberately because to me, it captures volition at 40%. You have control. How are you going to make, not just investing, but saving, spending, insuring, earning, giving, borrowing decisions that help you to give light, to put energy into the things that really matter to you? And I think the reason that funded contentment has taken off a little bit, you know, in our little world, people who write about these things and financial Twitter and, and so forth, is that it's a phrase that gives people permission to recalibrate to say, yes, of course I want more money. Yeah, with a million bucks, I could do some really cool and fun stuff. I could, you know, buy a fancy car, take a cool vacation. I could feed the homeless, you know, whatever. But the contentment part gives us liberty, opportunity to calibrate that number with the story that you're writing. So you bring together numbers and narratives in one simple mental model. I was next going to ask, what is required or what's needed to achieve funded contentment? And the answer to this is that three-step process you laid out just a, a few seconds ago of define your purpose, set your priorities, make your decisions. Do you have anything that you want to add here? And if not, I'm going to just kind of regurgitate a bit, but do you have anything additional you want to add here is along with that question of, you know, what sounds great, funded contentment. Let's talk about application, right? Like what is required to achieve funded contentment? Yeah. Well, I mean, then you touched on it and I, you know, I sort of got you, maybe I'm ruining, up, ruining your cadence, but, you know, we, we talked about the answer before we get posed the question. The question is, how do you achieve true wealth? Well, you know, footnote, you know, true wealth is funded contentment as I just defined it. And the answer is just that iterated process of purpose, priorities, decisions. And it's not like it's a one-way escalator where you start in one spot and you end up on the next level. No, it's a circle. It goes around and around. And there are good times and bad times. There are times we struggle to know what it all means, to, to feel comfort. 
in a variety of different ways. And there's other times it just feels natural, like we're just in the zone. But the point is that over a long lifetime, you have the opportunity to define purpose, set priorities, make decisions. But guess what? As you make decisions and those decisions produce outcomes and some are good, some are bad, and the world changes and you grow older and things change while you're back at the circle. I mean, it's really the stone of Sisyphus, but not in a bad way. You push the rock to the top of the mountain. You're almost there. Guess what? You're back at the bottom of the mountain with the rock on top of your head. Well, welcome to life. This is what we all do. We struggle to figure it out. I'm trying to introduce financial well-being into that Sisyphus myth alongside other forms of well-being, spiritual, emotional, physical. It's funny you reference that, the Sisyphus myth. I just got that tattooed on my body three months ago. I love that story. I love the idea. So you yeah. take it seriously. I take that seriously. <laughs> yeah, That is so you funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to circle back. You're not messing up the flow at all, by the way. I wanted to circle back and double click on this with intention. This idea set your purpose. What is truly meaningful to you is I think it's a really, really good question, right? And there's different strokes for different folks. Is it connection with others? Is it autonomy over your life's direction? Is it you've found a passion and a specific craft that you want to go chase? There's different strokes for different folks, and each of those can be retired in different ways. The second point or the second bullet, so first, define your purpose. The second, set priorities. That idea, and you made a really, really good point earlier, connecting money to a fulfilling life only occurs when you have self-defined purpose that intersects within the weeds financial planning, right? So set your priorities. The third one is make decisions. And this idea of defining purpose has sent me on a rabbit hole. Since meeting with you, this has probably been my most consuming topic. The most popular class at Stanford is called Life Design Lab. It is the most popular class. Every year, they have a giant waiting list. It's filled up through the roof. The professors of that course ended up turning that into a book. And that book starts with three myths. Uh, I just want to kind of rattle them off for you. The first one is, if you're successful, then you'll be happy. The second one is, a great life comes from following your passion. And the third one is, it's too late for me. And that second one there of a great life comes from following your passion, right? So they go on to disprove these myths in the book. But my biggest takeaway from the excerpts that I've read, 80% of the people don't know what they're passionate about. Passion is a result of having a well-designed life, not the cause. I think this stat, I mean, first off, it's extremely scary, probably somewhat because I fit into that mold of, do I really know what I'm passionate about? And to think 80% of people don't know what they're passionate about. And passion is a result of having a well-designed life, not the cause. This screams, I mean, it screams geometry of wealth, right? This is right down your fairway. No amount of money is going to solve this void of passion, right? And where your passion lies. That's kind of what I want to ask you next is knowing there's 80% of people out there that don't know where their passion sits. How would you suggest, how do you suggest when you're sitting across from someone, how do they explore themselves to go find their passion? I love this. That's great. And I actually wasn't familiar with that study or that course for that matter. So I know what I'm Googling (laughs) in a little bit from now. First of all, a lot of people just aren't wired for passion. I mean, when you think about sort of dancing in the end zone and just, you know, you have the one thing or the couple things that you just absolutely love, a lot of us may, probably me, just not like that. So I think the pursuit of your passion is, is probably a little overwrought. And there are long historical trends in terms of sort of the elevation of the individual and what it is he or she is supposed to achieve and who they're supposed to be. What I tried to do was, you know, maybe lower the temperature a bit on these questions about meaning, and I'll say meaning and not purpose. And to the question of what is a meaningful life, I set out a mental model in the book. You very nicely you know, ran through it. I call it the four C's, connection, control, context, and competence. And you know, based on living in the world for 50 years and you know, doing some directed research and 
philosophy and theology, psychology, economics, sociology, anthropology. What do people say about what's a meaningful life? And there's, there's lots of frameworks out there. And I've proposed one, and I always like to make sure that I'm not being dogmatic. The mental models that I come up with, they're for you, your listeners, for my family and neighbors to use as much as they are useful. You know, there's that line from whoever that all models are wrong, but some are useful. I want my models to be useful to some people some of the time. And so in my reading, there are those four things that you can anchor on. You know, it's that sense of belonging. We are wired to be social creatures in the sense we're social before we're individual, you know, sort of evidenced even further by modern brain science about how our brains effectively link with each other. We are social. We need that connection. We are tribal, small T tribal. That's really important to us. That sense of autonomy and that you have control over your life. If you take away someone's freedom and liberty, they are not a very happy person most of the time. You know, that sense of flow, that passion for your vocation, work is part of our identity. So very important. And then the last C, context, you know, that idea that you're living for something beyond yourself. We know this is to be true, but we, we have to take it seriously and be explicit every now and then. Again, it could be your faith. It could be pride of place, your hometown, your country. It could be your sports team. It could be a lot of things, but it's something beyond you that you are connected to, that you love, that you work for and, and toward. Those four categories are just a map of things that might be meaningful to people over time. And one thing I've done with clients, for example, I, I tend to you know, work more with financial advisors and institutions than individuals, but with individuals, what you can do is basically roll back your life. And you know, from early days as a, you know, for you as a young boy or teenager, what's been meaningful? Was it your friendships, your connections that were more meaningful, but work wasn't really a thing? And maybe, you know, for no particular reason, you know, and snap your fingers and, you know, you're just not connected to certain people the way you used to be. But man, you're just so into your work. You're so passionate for the things that you do. And, you know, this idea that you have to find your one passion, I find it not only distracting, but destructive because, you know, we're never done. You know, there's a great line from the social psychologist, Daniel Gilbert, that I now can't remember. So I'll have to paraphrase but basically said that human beings are works human beings are works in progress who mistakenly think that they're finished we are works in progress and what i want to encourage people through these different mental models through the geometry of wealth the the 25 five page essays in how i invest my money is to create a really inclusive space i don't want to say safe space but i guess that's politically loaded these days but just to say it's okay to think about these things. You're not alone in pondering the big picture stuff, but you're doing yourself a disservice by not connecting the big picture stuff to the in the weeds decisions that you need to make. That's the higher ground that is available to you, but not without work and dedication. When we talk about defining a purpose, and I'm a very goal-oriented guy, I've heard you talk through different approaches or your sort of thoughts and strategies, how you feel the approach to goals, the sort of paths that could take, right? If I kind of walk through where we're at, the first step is finding your sense of purpose. The second step, prioritize, make an action plan to execute and achieve that sense of purpose. I want to talk about goal setting really quickly. I've heard you talk through the hedonic treadmill. I believe I'm saying that right. And this idea that someone or people will set a goal only to achieve that goal and then very shortly after turn around and ask, okay, what's next? That idea of the quest for more is very unsatisfying. I find that this idea of setting goals and setting a sense of purpose, there's something in parallel here that I can't quite put my finger on. I mentioned I'm very goal-oriented. I have things that I write down where, you know, for the podcast, I have goals. I want to hit 100 reviews. For myself, I know I'm going to house hack this year. I know that I want to achieve fire status, right? And become financially independent. I want to have a portfolio of passive income that could sustain a minimalist lifestyle. Like there are things that I know that I want that are goals. And as I hear you talk about this hedonic treadmill, I can't help but reflect or think about are these potential what's next markers, right? And the question I want to ask you is, 
as we make our goals, set our goals, how do you recommend approaching those? What is a, how do we adjust and ensure that we are content, if that makes sense? Yeah, big, big question. So goals are critical. We are growth oriented creatures. You know, there's something called self determination theory, which you know, suggests that, you know, we want to have control over our lives in order to achieve things. So that just that evolutionary instinct to stay safe and then to be on our front foot where we can get things done. That's just sort of who we are. The challenge, I don't, you know, it's sort of a fuzzy line that gets crossed when it re- as it relates to goals is that goals are important. And maybe I'll put it this way, necessary, but not sufficient to this meaningful life that we're trying to explore. Precisely because we do know, and you mentioned this term hedonic treadmill, there's a couple ideas in the social psychology literature. One is effective forecasting. The second is hedonic adaptation. Big loaded terms, I'll summarize them hopefully in plainer language. Effective forecasting is this idea that we're actually pretty terrible at knowing what's gonna make us happy in the future. More generically, we're not good at predicting the emotions that we're going to have in response to certain expected events. And so does getting that promotion make us super happy? The answer is usually not as happy as you thought it would, and also for a shorter period of time. It fades away. So, you know, step one is we're not good at predicting what makes us happy. And then hedonic adaptation means that you get used to it. Okay, so you achieve fire status and you're triple black belt jujitsu guy, and that's great. And then you're going to say, well, what's next? And this is replicated in retirement world where we have this historically specific, but totally artificial notion of something called retirement. And so you get to age 62 or 65 with X number of dollars. And the financial advisor says, you're done. Congrats. You did everything right. Saving, spending, investing. And increasingly with longevity where it is, which all else equal is a blessing, you've got 25, 30 years to go potentially. And the husband and wife say, well, great, but what's next? That question about what next and the endless pursuit of goals, sprinting on a treadmill gets you nowhere. That is, you are pulling, and I'm sorry to interrupt, you are pulling from exactly, I mean, this is exactly what I was thinking about, exactly where this question comes from. I think any athlete, especially any athlete that pursues their sport for a long period of time, I I had the chance to go play college football. I played four sports up until college, which means year round. I was out, you know, swinging a baseball bat. I was watching film. I was deeply involved in sports, right? the entire grind from four or five years old, you're hearing, hey, the goal here is to have school or have sports pay for school, have sports pay for school, right? Like you're hearing that for years and 15 years into this, 20 years into this, you get out of college and when you graduate, that is over, right? You got your scholarship. I do my time and boom, it's done. And then I found myself like, oh shit, now what? What's next, right? Like I did. 16, 18 years of this hard grind to get this scholarship and pay for football. And then it happened and then it's done. And that's all this time, all this skill set, everything that's been built is there. And then it's almost, you know, quote unquote, put to waste. Definitely not, but almost kind of quote unquote, put to waste. And I found, I actually listened to you talk about this same concept with retirement, right? And this idea that we've been sort of machined or programmed to focus on a single occupation and become damn good at what we do for 30, 40, 50 years, develop these skill sets, develop these relationships, just get really, really good at what you do to stop doing what you do. Like it's the craziest idea. And like you said, you get to that point of retirement and then you ask yourself now, now what, what's next? Let me ask this. And I have two more questions for you. Let me ask this. Understanding retirement is not the answer, and I need to X that out. What do you put at the end? If someone were to ask you, what's your end goal? What's your end state? What's your, you know, what are you striving for? How do you answer that? What is something good to circle at the end? For me personally, you know, I use my mind map, my four C's. You know, I think about tracing the kids and the people I love. I think about, you know, the passions that I want to pursue, the the writing, the travel, boozy dinners with friends, like just fun stuff. I think about, you know, the sense of control or autonomy I have 
and the ability to you know, sort of control my own time, only work with people that I want to work with. And then, you know, broader beliefs in terms of, you know, just broader beliefs, my attachments. I'm not that goal oriented anymore. I launched a new business in the last few months. I wanted to do really well. I guess that's a goal. And beyond, you know, below that lofty goal, there's a thousand and one tasks that I need to do. But I want the journey inside that business to be meaningful. And one reason why meaning is, I think, more powerful than happiness is that you can be just underneath it all. You can even be sad, angry, and it could still be very meaningful. I mean, my mom's getting older. The care that she needs is escalating quickly. This is not fun. It's also expensive. It's also very meaningful. There are times that I wish I didn't have to take care of some of the things that I'm taking care of, but it's what I ought to be doing. I think increasingly about what regrets I will have at the end of the day, more so than what trophies will I have on my shelf. And I think this does come with age because it lands more with you know people in my generation than yours, which is natural. But you know, all of finance, all of money, and so much of life is about more. 10 is more than nine, 11 is more than 10. That's the basic function. But there's a completely different script about regret minimization as distinct from goal maximization. And part of what I want to do personally is think through goals, goal achievement versus regret elimination, messy and sloppy. I don't have a spreadsheet. I'm not going to have a spreadsheet. It's just something that I think about. And as I work with financial advisors and individuals and corporations and their employees on, on these topics, creating the words and concepts and mental models so that people can go away and think about these and hopefully have it make an impact in their lives. And unfortunately, it's not the budget spreadsheet. It's not the, you know, find the right insurance policy app. I mean, sorry, like, yes, you can make a lot of those decisions, but I'm more interested in creating the space for people to have permission about to contemplate what I know matters more. I know I'm hugging my time here, bro. My last official question to you. We did not spend much time talking through or about your third book. I became obsessed with your second book and it took my entire interview time. But your third book, How I Invest My Money, as you said, it's a compilation of 25-ish experts that certified financial planners, people that have gone out and got their doctorates, folks that study the financial world much more rigorously than I do. And basically, you've asked them that question of how do you invest your money? Why? And it's four or five pages of people giving their reasons and very prescriptive sort of portfolio outlay or, or frameworks. This is exactly how I invest my money. I thought it was a, it's a fantastic book. One of the first pages of this book, you give us a question that was written by Sandy Gottesman. And so I did a rabbit hole jump last night on who is he. And I've listened to a couple of his interviews and he is a billionaire investor. And he opens up most of, if not all of his interviews with the same question of what do you own and why I decided to close this interview with the same question. From a portfolio point of view? Yes, sir. Yeah. So, well, thanks for the nice words about the book. I've just been thrilled with the way that it's been received. 25 very brief essays from financial experts really pulling back the curtain on their own portfolios, but also saving decisions, spending decisions, whether or not they have mortgages. And as you saw, and I think what's led the book to have, you know, sort of a nice reception is that you've got serious people telling authentic stories about their lives, really talking about the why more than the what, or even the how. What blew me away and not to interrupt, what blew me away is these are, I mean, we're talking best of breed financial experts that we're reading from. And I can, there's probably eight of them, maybe even more than that, that had fully paid off their home before they needed to, or bought a second home, a cottage, right? Like, and I think if you looked at those on paper, everybody would agree. That's probably not the best financial decision, right? Like there are other better things to do with your money than to pay off your mortgage in full or to, to pay off your home. But as you said, there's a deeper sense here of purpose and numbers aside, everybody has sort of circled what's important to me, my household, my family on my money scripts. And most of these folks in this book decided that paying off their home was more important than what the equation on the paper said. It's 25 chapters about funding contentment. 
I mean, that's an alternative title for the book, Funding Contentment. Some are wonkier than others, like specific, port, you know, these are the funds that I own. And others, you know, are about a summer cottage. No reference whatsoever to investing or the markets. The answer to your question, I mean, I lay out a framework in the book that's, you know, sort of, I've realized in life, sometimes you paint the bullseye after you've shot the arrow and claim to be a good archer. So what I did in the book was basically walk through kind of the buckets of investments that categories of how my investments are sort of set up in my spreadsheet. And the takeaway is that it's all goals oriented. I mean, I sort of ripped on goals a little bit, but you know, when we think about basic financial planning, it's not a difficult exercise. It may even sound boring or prosaic to you know, more sophisticated traders or investors, but simply having a sense of the liabilities that you want to that you want to fund. And when are those liabilities coming due? And is it a bullet payment, so to speak? Like I'm going to write a big check for college and grant it four payments, but sort of here's a big chunk of money I need for you know this moment in time. Or is it a cash flow goal? And I think I actually deal with this in the geometry of wealth a little bit too. So, you know, I've got longer term investments. We're gonna quote unquote retire, whatever that means at, at some point. And, you know, my investments are in index funds. Specifically, I've got a plurality of my assets in VT, which is ticker for Vanguard total stock market. So for, I think, five basis points, I have exposure, market cap weighted exposure to 19,000 securities, something like that. If the stock market on planet Earth does well, I'll do okay. I spent 15 plus years deep, deep in the weeds with hedge fund managers and mutual fund managers, the masters of the universe. And I can promise you they get things wrong more than they get things right in terms of sector rotation, market cap rotation, arbitrage trades, you name it. I just own the market for our longer term goals. For shorter term stuff, You know, I hold a lot of cash because in part, and I mentioned this in the book, my financial capital and my human capital are very highly correlated. So if the market goes way down, my career is in jeopardy. That's not the case for a lot of people, but it is for me and for others in the book, which is in part why a lot of people pay off their mortgages because they want that stability. Different conversation for a different day, the relationship between financial capital and human capital. It's a really important topic. So, you know, cash for immediate to near-term needs and a quest to get sort of super premium returns on that cash some income yielding investments in real estate and other private ventures that are giving me a nice coupon. And that's just sort of evergreen. You know, can I get to, and I think Scott Galloway, you know, defines this best. You know, I talked about wealthy. What is rich? Rich is having passive income, sleep at night, you know, income that you earn while you're sleeping that's in excess of your monthly burn. I'm not there, but I'd like to be there. It sounds awesome. And then, so I got long-term investments, I got cash, I got sort of income yielding stuff, and then I've got lottery tickets. I've got a bunch of small venture capital, angel investments, some with friends who have launched their own business, others that I've just met along the way where it's like, huh, you know, this is the coolest new snow cone maker ever. Like this thing's going to be awesome. It's a billion dollar snow cone maker and I'm going to get in on the beginning. You know, I've invested in some pretty stupid stuff. Not snow cone makers, but just, you know, venture capital, that money, if it goes to zero, we're going to be fine. But if it works out. Yeah, you'll be better than fine. I'll be better than fine. And, you know, I can think about, you know, sort of charity and generational wealth in a, in a different way. But I'll cross that bridge when I come to it, because right now I've got, you know, just stuff that's out there and it'll be years before I know. Brian, man, this has exceeded all expectations, brother. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for doing this. For the folks that, I mean, you have three books and blogs and a website. For the folks that want to digest more of your material, where can they go? I run a financial well-being firm called uh, Shaping Wealth. So I primarily work with financial advisors and their clients. And at shapingwealth.com, there's just some high-level information on what we're building. It's very early days, but it's an educational technology platform that's going to hopefully help people achieve funded contentment. So shapingwealth.com and my email there is just BP. My initial is at shapingwealth. I'm pretty active in financial Twitter, which is a wonderful community of people sharing ideas. So I'm at Brian Portnoy. And then, you know, unfortunately, there's only one bookstore left in the world. So if you go to Amazon and and type in my name, you know, the geometry of wealth is probably where I would have people start. 
because it is sort of the way I think about the world. And I've just been thrilled with the reception there. I would not recommend the investor's paradox unless you're an investment professional because it's a little wonkier. And then the most recent book, as you nicely referred to, it's 25 five-page chapters. So, you know, no, every chapter is seven, eight, 10 minutes to read. And you get a really smart, interesting person pulling back the curtain on their own personal finances. And what we have found is that, you know, the book's sold pretty well and we've gotten a lot of feedback. Everybody is finding two or three people in the book where they say, she's kind of like me, or he's kind of like me, or, huh, that's the decision that I've been grappling with. Just, I don't know if I'm going to do what they did, but, huh, they're kind of like me. And they're just, here's an example of somebody who's grappling with the same thing. I think we've inspired some people to explore in a way that they haven't before. Yeah. I've grabbed, I mean, at least three names out of this that I want to double click on and go figure out, let me learn more from you. So I can't recommend it enough. Uh, All books, your website, everything that we've discussed from resource standpoint will be linked in the show notes. I called you a wizard at the top of the call, man. No better term, brother. You've hit it right on the head. For the listeners, I'm even more grateful for you all tuning in this week. Thank you all for your ears. Until next week, stay on your grind. The man is a straight up beast. I'm very, very grateful, very honored to have the opportunity to chat with somebody like Brian. I say this all the time, but I love when someone can take an overly complex idea, an overly complex topic, but because they've spent so much time studying it and rigorously studying it, they're able to articulate their thoughts or that idea in a way that the average human like myself can start to understand and try to digest. I'm not going to run through all of the notes, all the takeaways that I've pulled from this call. It would take us another hour. For those of you that want everything that I've captured, this is sort of a journey that I've embarked on. So this is not just me podcasting. I've got lots of notes and I'm trying to extract things here and implement them in my life. If you want those takeaways, the summary that I've sort of pulled from this and that I'll reflect on, feel free to reach out on my website. Uh, More and more of you are doing this each and every week. I'm starting to feel like I should just have a form on the the webpage. I'm sure there's a a sort of break-even point here where I'll hit a number and just post something. But for now, feel free to reach out on my website. I am happy to add you to that list and ongoingly include you in this sort of PDF update with all of my notes. I do want to just quickly close with one idea, one thought that has stuck with me since this interview. This is something that I've brought up in other calls and other interviews. It's something that I I am sure is going to stick with me for a very long time, if not forever. And that's the 40% rule. And I think it's something to understand it's important to understand that there is so much out of your control the genetics you know your circumstances your environment embrace that idea that you have 40% control and take that opportunity that you've been given that 40% and run with it and maximize it don't spend that power that energy that time chasing riches chasing literal money And instead, seek out your self-defined purpose. What is meaningful to you individually as a person and pursue funded contentment. Everything that you need can be found at my website. Links, the transcript, as I mentioned, my notes. If you've made it this far, keep in mind I'm on a journey here myself, a road to 100 reviews. I would really appreciate you just taking a few seconds and dropping a review for this podcast, wherever you're tuning in from. And until next week, that's all I have. There's lots of cool stuff in store for the podcast here in March and April, but until next week, stay on your grind. Yeah, yeah. I do it for health, yeah, yeah. 
So real to the wealth, yeah, yeah. With my kids and my spouse, yeah, yeah. So real to the wealth, I do it for help, yeah. With my kids and my spouse, yeah. Financially sound, yeah, yeah. So real to the wealth, yeah. I do it for help, yeah. With my kids and my spouse, yeah. Financially sound, yeah. If life about purpose, it gives you something to see, yeah. Uh, I've been setting cash goals, financially speaking, uh. I've been finding blessings through all of these demons. Uh, I pray to God, I give you something to reach with. Uh, See, I give you something to leave with. This life about goals and achievements. Your eyes on the prize, they hit out your mind. And pray to whatever beliefs in. Teach on the way, know that they're beaching the way. Gotta shine hard in the teacher's water. Know that little seed, they gon' grow tomorrow. So every day, gotta come with us. So they give you something to stand on. Make the fuss off when you land raw. Make you put some new friends on. So road to the world. I do it for help, yeah. With my kids and my spouse, yeah. I financially sound, yeah, yeah. It's the road of the wealth, yeah. I do it for help, yeah. With my kids and my spouse, yeah. I financially sound, yeah, yeah.